In our last session, we saw the equipping of the seven angels who would pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath. The angels emerged from the sanctuary of the heavenly tabernacle already equipped, it tells us. They had their respective plagues. And last week I mentioned plagues is not a... Even though it's in every one of our versions, it's really not the best thing. What they are bringing are blows, strikes against the earth. I'd like us to first consider the group as a whole before we examine each bowl's effect on the earth and its remaining people. First, one striking difference between these plagues and the first two groups, seals and trumpets, is that whereas the pain or destruction inflicted by the first two was partial, limited to a certain area, or mysteriously afflicting only one-third or one-fourth of the population or the earth. For example, death given authority over one-fourth of the earth. Chapter 6, verse 8. Damage by the first four and six trumpets limited to a third of the earth or a third of mankind. Now with the bowls, the devastation will be total. All who have the mark of the beast. All of the sea and every living thing in it. All the fresh water on earth. All scorched by the sun. Second, these plagues are reminiscent of earlier plagues during the tribulation, as well as the plagues of Egypt in the book of Exodus. Commentators always run back to Exodus. But they're not identical. There seems to be no good reason to establish some connection, some congruity with the earlier plagues. Again, while those inflicted earlier, even in Egypt, were limited in one manner or another, these, for the most part, will be total. And finally, every commentator I have read declares that these seven bold judgments are, in the words of John Wolverd, he says they fall in rapid succession like trip hammer blows and they all will be consummated within a short period of time toward the close of the Great Tribulation. End quote. Not one of the commentators cites, and I've been unable to find the Scripture text that reveals this, that they happen quickly and one right after the other, all of a sudden. They just say it like, well, of course we know this. But I find no text that says that. Nonetheless, I will bow to their superior scholarship and let their position stand. These happen very quickly, run right after the other. A passage in Hebrews serves as a suitable preamble to the third woe, which in my old NASB study Bible is given the heading Christ or Judgment. Turn please to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 
And let's read verses 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy by the mouth of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is without question one of the most sobering verses in God's Word. Stay there, Scott. Revelation 16, verses 1 to 2. Let's read our first two verses. And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl into the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon the men who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. So we're ready for verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Remember what we learned from verse 8 in chapter 15. Quote, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. End quote. Thus we can safely deduce that the loud voice coming from the temple commanding the angels to pour out the bowls of wrath must be the voice of God. He's the only one who can be in there. No one else is permitted in the temple. In fact, his strong voice bookends the seven judgments. He commands the angels to begin here in verse 1. And after the seventh and last bowl is poured out in verse 17, the same voice of God declares, It is done. I like that. Verse 2, the first bowl. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The no. Now, I said earlier that these plagues would be total, instead of partial, meaning instead of a third or a fourth being affected, it would be geographically total. They are partial in the sense that most are, of them are aimed directly at those who bear the mark of the beast and worship, worship his image. Some things are global, we'll see in a moment, and affect globally, but some affect just those who are not followers of Christ. 
I have to think if you're if you're kind of adding up who's left on the earth right now, there's not very many people and fewer believers. More on that in a moment. The Greek helkos, translated sore, means a festering, ulcerous, disgusting wound. Interestingly, half of our common versions render this plural, sores. But the original text is singular. Perhaps the plural is used to express multiple people so inflicted. But one sore per person. In any case, this will be unpleasant in the extreme. The King James Version is the most poetic with noisome and grievous. I like that. Doesn't tell you much, but I like it. It isn't much help in describing the actual wound. Loathsome or noisome in the King James Version translates kakos. And malignant, grievous in the King James, translates poneron. Both are words for evil. But the second word, poneron, means more evil. MacArthur points out that, quote, used together they stress that the sores will be festering, painful, and incurable. They will bring unrelieved physical torment to those who have rejected Jesus Christ. No thirds or halves with this judgment. These sores will not be inflicted upon believers, only those who bear the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image, but all of them. And here is evidence that this will indeed take place during the latter half of the tribulation, the great tribulation, so, so to speak, since not until then will the beast's image be in place. It's only for the second three and a half years that the Im- image is in place. So if they worship the image of the beast, that's when this is happening. Now let's read the next two verses, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 16. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. The first plague was aimed directly at people. The second and third plagues will be directed toward all waters on the earth. But of course they will bring even more misery and death upon the populace of the earth. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. And it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. This is one of those, well, this whole passage, this whole chapter is one where you say, okay, yeah, we've read this before. No, you've got to let this sink in. I'm going to do my best to help it sink in. But nevertheless, this, this is amazing. First, words and their placement are important. Even the small two-letter kind, by their placement of just the simple word. You think this class is bad. You should have been in my class when I spent an entire session on one word, the word in. 
this is nothing. Okay, no charge for that. Here, the placement of just the simple word as, or the word like, depending on your translation, are saying or at least implying different things, primarily regarding the constitution of the sea after the second bowl is poured out upon it. Most of our versions, like the NASB, say it, it became blood, or turned into blood. That is, the modifying words as or like comes after the word blood. Two of our versions, the ESV and King James Version, put the word before blood. The ESV says, the sea, comma, and it became like the blood of a corpse. King James is similar. Though these versions offer a number of variants, the important difference for our purpose is this. Are the words as or like before or after the word blood? If before, as in the ESV and King James, this leaves open the possibility, but doesn't demand it, that the sea has become something other than literal blood, became like blood. Okay, fair enough. Perhaps just red in color or a thick viscosity, which is what the blood in a corpse is like, like molasses. The rest of our common versions make it clear that it is real blood with the as or like modifying the nature of the blood. As far as I can determine, the original Greek has as between blood and corpse. That is, blood as a dead person. Which makes the blood real. The word is hema, from which we get our hemo, as in hemoglobin. This means that in a moment... All the oceans of the world are turned from seawater to blood with the consistency of molasses. And of course, everything in it dies. And as with all these plagues, it does not stop there. We don't just say, oh, look, the seas of blood, and we turn away and walk away. No. This will set loose a chain reaction of despair. I I found this paragraph in BibleRef.com. No name to go with it. No doubt this judgment cripples the beasts, antichrists, shipping and fishing industries. Yeah, I would think so. The effects of this judgment would be even further reaching than simple commerce. A massive change in ocean waters can have a drastic effect on weather and rain. Also, if everything living in the oceans were to die, it would remove a primary food source for the entire world. Even more dire, ocean plants produce most of the oxygen in the atmosphere. I didn't know that, but that's true. 
Better than 50% of our oxygen comes from what's growing in the sea. The death of everything in the oceans would start a countdown to the extinction of all life on earth. When we think about this, the seas turn to thick blood, killing everything. I don't think we can even imagine the stench. Third bowl. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. Now God visits upon the fresh water what he just did with the salt water. Remember that all these judgments, beginning with the seals and continuing on through the trumpets and the bowls, are cumulative. For example, the third trumpet poisoned one-third of the world's fresh water. So since then, it has been in short supply. Now it will all be gone. Rivers and springs even the fresh water underground. God is very thorough. John MacArthur describes the result. The destruction of what is left of the earth's fresh water will cause unthinkable hardship and suffering. There will be no water to drink, no clean water to wash the oozing sores caused by the first bowl judgment. No water to bring cooling relief from the scorching heat that the fourth bowl judgment will shortly bring. It's MacArthur. Again, no half measures here. The entire sea and all fresh water, rivers and springs will be afflicted and every living thing in the waters will die. We can well imagine that the remaining poor souls on the earth would be crying out to the heavens, just as people do today whenever cataclysmic events occur. We can hear them even now. How could a loving God do such a thing? God is gracious and kind. How could He permit this to happen? Or perhaps the denizens of the earth, as upcoming passages indicate, will take a more strident accusatory tone. Just who do you think you are, God? We don't deserve to be treated this way. In verses 5-7, to seven, we have God's answer to this cry. The people's cry is not recorded in our text, but it's recorded to say what God is saying, assuming that it was. The answer as, as so very often happens when we study the epistles in the New Testament, the answer tells us what people have been saying. Here an angelic go-between, the angel of the waters, who by now is out of a job, of course, speaks in defense of God and His righteous judgments. And I, that is John, heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. The angel declares that God, the Holy One, is innocent of the charges because He is right. He is correct. 
And you have to love verse 6. Remember how the world celebrated, even exchanged gifts with each other at the murder of the two witnesses in Revelation 11? They left them dead in the streets, their bodies rotting, so that everybody could celebrate. They even exchanged gifts with each other like it was Christmas. Isn't this great? These guys are dead. Their dead bodies were left exposed for three and a half days so that people could rejoice over their demise. The angel continues, For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. All right, God says, Since the beginning of time, these people have treated my prophets with contempt. And much worse. They've spilled the blood of my messengers, so now they deserve to drink blood. That is all they will have to drink. Then either another angel from around the altar or the altar itself personified chimes in. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true. And righteous are your judgments. The time for the Lord God's long-suffering with sin has come to an end. And as to the retribution meted out, His judgments are true and righteous. He has the right, and they deserve it. So after this brief interval, the judgments continue. Let's read verses 8 to 11, please. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds." The fourth bowl. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. The prophet Malachi, writing around 432 BC, spoke of this day. Malachi 4. Verse 1, that's Tina over here, Scott. Turn please to Malachi 4, verse 1. The last Old Testament book. The last prophet. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. The first three angels poured out God's wrath on the earth. The fourth pours out his wrath on the sun. 
but of course with dire consequences for those on the earth. None of our common versions include it. But in the Greek of both verse 8 and verse 9, the word men, which is anthropoi, plural, includes the definite article, the men, which seems to refer back to the same people spoken of in earlier verses, such as verse 2, the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. That is, it would seem that any believers still on the earth, admittedly few, will possibly be spared the intense heat of the sun. We don't really know that, but the, this definite article may point us in that direction. Yet there's no indication that they will be given a secret source of fresh water to drink. God here is giving these people a taste of that which awaits them in the lake of fire. Their eternal home after the great white throne judgment. Chapter 20, verse 15. There are those who have been claiming for decades that the polar ice caps are melting, though they aren't. But now they really will. Imagine a sea of thick, putrid blood, full of dead fish, etc., being pushed and raised onto the land by all this melting ice from the polar, melting polar caps. You can't paint a pretty picture of that. It's going to be really disgusting on earth. Some commentators seem surprised that this powerful judgment does not, does not result in repentance. In fact, many of them just run to that quickly. They just... They're not, they make a big deal out of it. Well, I'm not in that camp. Just because it mentions in the text that they didn't repent, it does not mean that God expected or meant for them to. I think it makes perfect sense that the judgments thus far hideous sores, the seas and rivers turned to blood, the sun or earth shifted so that Welcome warmth has now become unbearable scorching. All these after the previous judgments of the seals and trumpets, all of this would harden even further the hearts of those who already hate God. They, of course, will shake their fists at God rather than bow down before Him. They know He's the one doing it. He's making their lives miserable. And they resent it, of course. It's not fair. We don't deserve this. It won't matter to them in their fallen logic that they do indeed deserve it. Verse 6. Just as people do today, such hardship orchestrated by God will not excite repentance, but further sharpen their anger against what they see as an unjust God. And I believe God is not doing this expecting a change of heart in these people. That's not why He's doing it. Not now. Yes, in the church age, in our time, He chastises for repentance. He drives people 
to the gutter so that they will look up to him and repent and change their lives. This is not the church age. This is the time of God's wrath. These judgments are poured out from bowls of his wrath, one after the other, dispensing his anger and punishment upon those who have persisted in rejecting him and his Christ. If some do indeed repent, then so be it. They will be welcomed. But that's not his purpose in these final days. The late great Charles Haddon Spurgeon had something to say about this. He wrote this, Judgment may produce a carnal repentance, a repentance that is of the flesh, and after the manner of the sinful nature of men, in this repentance the depravity of the heart remains the same in essence, though it takes another form of showing itself. Though the man changes, he is not savingly changed. He becomes another man, but not a new man. The same sin rules in him, but it is called by another name and wears another dress. The stone is carved into a more sightly shape, but it is not turned into flesh. The iron is cast into another image, but it is not transformed into gold. This this carnal repentance is caused by fear. Does not every thief repent of robbery when he is convicted and sent to jail? Does not every murderer repent of his crime when he stands under the fatal tree? Verses 10 to 11, the fifth bowl. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Big surprise. Just a note here. The accompanying graphic for the fifth bowl on chart number 17 shows fire coming down onto the Jerusalem temple. Perhaps the astute of you notice that, hey, where'd the fire come from? The text does not mention fire, but darkness. Well, uh, how does one portray darkness? A black square? So I used fire to portray God's wrath poured out on the beast and his kingdom. The first account of such a plague sent by God was as the next-to-last plague inflicted on Egypt before the Exodus. Let's look at that. Exodus 10. Exodus chapter 10. Verses 21 to 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, so that darkness will spread over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered the Egypt, all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. 
Yet all the Israelites had light in their places where they lived. There is a darkness Apparently, I'm not the only one. I'm hearing coughing all over the place. There is a darkness and there is a silence that can be felt. I remember shooting out in the desert. It's night. It's dark. Absolutely dark. Can't see a thing. No stars, no moon, nothing. Dark. I guess there'd be stars if there was no moon. But no moon. No illumination. You literally can't see your hand in front of your face. And then the silence. Not a sound. And it's so quiet, it hurts your ears. It roars in your ears. It's so silent. And this is the kind of darkness that that both in Exodus and here in Revelation that they're talking about. It's so dark, it's oppressive. You can feel it like a weight coming down on you. It hurts. It makes people chew on their tongues. They're, so, they're in such anguish over it. Just because it's dark. Later, a number of the Old Testament prophets would speak of God doing it again during the last days. Isaiah 62-3, For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. We often read that around Christmas, but it applies to here as well. Joel 2, tail end of verse 1 and verse 2, For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. Jesus spoke of it as well. Mark thirteen twenty four to 26 But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. J.A. Seiss can be a bit florid at times because of his generation, but he paints a vivid picture of this fifth judgment upon the earth. Here's what he writes. This darkening of the beast's kingdom added to the earlier inflictions brings terrible distress. The description indicates the intensest writhings of anguish, the very madness of vexation and pain. The people who suffer these plagues bite their tongues, chew them, gnaw them as their best diversion from their misery. Their tongues have spoken blasphemies. And they themselves thus punish them. <laughs> Their tongues have... Eat, earth has become like hell for wickedness. And so it becomes like hell for darkness and torment. Nay, still further like hell because there is no repentance in its inhabitants. Instead of cursing themselves for their impieties, they curse God as the offender for thus interfering with their preferences and their peace. 
to the ulcers, the bloody waters, the the sun scorches. Now comes this horrible darkness. And a God of such administrations they disdain to honor. Even under all their miseries, they will gnaw their tongues with pain and rage rather than speak a prayer of penitence to Him. Nothing but cursing and horrid denunciations will they utter. When they saw the two slain witnesses come to life again and ascend to heaven, they were willing to own that the God of heaven is God and to give Him something of His glory. But it's only a temporary reverence, which soon faded away. Here they are again compelled to acknowledge Him as the God of heaven, but it's only to heap new blasphemies on His name. A few moments ago, I referred to chart 17 and fire coming down onto the Jerusalem temple. The seat of the beast's power. That's my own conclusion. But it requires some explanation. Perhaps you, like me, prefer to know where certain events are taking place. I like to see pictures of people so I know, okay, this is what, this is the person I'm praying for. I know what they look like. I can have their image in my head. And I like to know where things are taking place. But the revelation is maddeningly vague about just where the throne of the beast is. Let me explain my thinking on this and why I believe it to be Jerusalem, at least for the sake of this judgment. In a short while, we'll be discussing in chapter 17 and 18 the destruction of Babylon, the great harlot. The identity of the harlot is given in verses 17 to 18. I'm sorry, chapter 17, verse 18. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. That is, the worldwide power structure established under the beast. Antichrist. But Babylon also represents the false religion established under the beast. Roughly speaking, chapter 17 of Revelation deals with the political side of Babylon. 18 the religious side. Both are intertwined. Both are working under the beast. Verse 5 in chapter 17 says that the city is a mystery. Understanding these two, so from that some people say, well, maybe it's not even a city at all. It's just described as a city. Understanding these two chapters, <clears throat> excuse me, understanding these two chapters about the fall of Babylon is, as most expositors agree, very difficult. Some say Babylon is Rome, while others say it's the corrupt papacy in Rome. Some say Babylon is a restored city along the Euphrates. And there's much that commends that position. But now I go back to chapter 13 
which is all about the establishment of Antichrist, the beast from the sea, and the false prophet, the beast from the earth. These two work together. One, the, the beast, the Antichrist, working on the political side, the power side. The beast from the earth, the false prophet, working on the mystical, religious side. If we cannot say for certain where the throne of the beast is located, we can know where it began, especially the aspect of his rule that is used that used a false and blasphemous religion to establish and extend his power. Revelation 13, verses 11 to 12, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. So as I've pointed out before, the, the false prophet is, is the Antichrist PR man. He's the one who dances around and makes all the miracles to make him seem like God and convinces people. The supernatural idol his image to honor Antichrist and cause people to worship him as God was erected in the Jerusalem temple, called by Daniel the abomination of desolation. No matter where Babylon is, if it is a real city at all, no matter from where Antichrist rules the world, Jerusalem is the root from which such power sprouted. And that's why in this chart, I have the fire coming down onto the temple, the Jerusalem temple, because that's where it started. Our Father in heaven, we tremble at the images being portrayed here. In fact, if we were honest, we would say, we don't know this God. We do, but we have been living under your grace and your long-suffering, your kindness. You are our Heavenly Father. You love us, and we love you. This is not a different God. It is the same God in a different time, a different dispensation. You recorded in your word from the very beginning that you would only be patient so long, and then would come your wrath. And this is what we are seeing. These are not lessons for the population on earth. 
This is pain inflicted by a God who has had enough of their sin. You are going to destroy them. You are going to destroy the earth. You've already started. And one day there will be new heavens, new earth, a new Jerusalem, all of which will be untainted by sin. You are making the preparations already in our text. So we tremble at your wrath, but we rejoice that we will not be under it. And that is because of your grace and the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus in whose name we pray and worship you and praise you. Amen.